Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are some under the chairs in front of you. And I believe in those Bibles you'll find 1 Corinthians 13 on page 1,150. If you're not used to navigating a Bible, just turn to, to that page number and you should find it there. And you'll be helped by, by following along as we read and study this passage together. I'm going to go ahead and read it before we do much of, a, of an introduction. 1 Corinthians 13. I'll start at the very end of chapter 12 and I'll read through about verse 8 of chapter 13. And I show you a still more excellent way. It's the end of chapter 12. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give, my, give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. In the Reformation, about 400 years ago, there was a lot of debate about what were the marks of a true church. What should a true church be characterized by? And they came up with three things. The biblical preaching of the word, the right practice of sacraments, of, of baptism and communion, uh, and, and church discipline, uh, perhaps surprisingly, was, was in that list as well. And so whether it was Martin Luther or later uh, John Calvin or John Knox, um, the Anglican church, they, they all kind of resonated around these same three big ideas, that the word needs to be taught accurately, we, we practice the sacraments accurately, and, and, and there's church discipline to maintain a holy body. Uh, a few years ago, another ministry came up with a, a helpful list of what they called the nine marks of a healthy church. So, so not just what is a church, but, but what should characterize a, a healthy church. And they mirrored some of those same things, the right preaching of the word, but also a, a real clarity on the gospel, that the gospel is, is crystal clear, that evangelism is practiced, that there's a the biblical idea of church membership and that the leadership is led in a, in a biblical way and kind of went through various things. And, and all of those are, are helpful, I think, whether it's these three core things or nine marks of a healthy church. But what we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 already is that if a church has all of those things but does not have love, then it's lacking the most important thing. These other things are vital but they must be practiced in love. It's not that love is the fourth essential mark or the tenth mark of a healthy church, but rather that the preaching must be done in love, that the leadership must lead in love, that the membership must interact with each other in, in love. And without that, we are missing the most important thing that should characterize all of those. 
That's why we saw at the beginning of chapter 13 that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, it's like a noisy glong or a clanging cymbal. I already mentioned that this passage is often read at, at weddings. If you go to a wedding this summer, there's a, it's a really high chance this is going to be read there. Right? And, and it's because it's beautiful. It's, it's poetic. And it is a lofty ideal of love. But especially those of you that maybe have been married for a while, have you ever been sitting at a, at a wedding and a young couple is, is hearing this taught and they're saying, yes, I'm going to love like that, you know, love that is patient and kind. I'm going to do all those things. And you're thinking, do you know what you're getting into? Right? <laughs> Do you know? It's easy to say that I'm going to love like this. Just like it's easy to say we want a loving church. But the boots on the ground can be hard. I love, though, that this passage does not leave it fuzzy what love should look like. It is concrete and specific and actionable. Last week we began this chapter by looking at the absolute necessity of love. We won't go through all that in detail. Again, we did that last week. That's web messages on our website if you would want to catch up there. But what we saw in the first three verses is what we just said, that whatever is practiced in the church, however gifted somebody might be, it must be done in love or it is, it is worthless. It, 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 it counteracts the very ministry that is attempted to be done. Love must be Evident in concrete, observable acts and attitudes that affect the people around you. You could say that if a church gets chapters 1 through 12 right, because it is a book that is dealing with issues of the local church, but gets chapter 13 wrong, then it renders the rest of it irrelevant. We, 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 must, we must be a church that, that loves in this way. We went through it first first couple things in this list, that love is patient and kind, and we're going to just keep working through these items, giving more time to some than others, but to, to try to give you enough information on them that you feel like you know what it's calling you to do. So the next one on our list is that love is not jealous or arrogant. Not jealous or arrogant, we see in, in verse 4. Several terms we'll cover together. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. They go together well because a jealous person would seek to tear others down. A boastful person would seek to, to build themselves up. But a loving person that loves like this would seek to build others up. So jealousy, to dig into that one specifically. The term here has a, a burning intensity to it. That This is a, a burning intensity envy towards someone else. And I think what's important to note about jealousy is we tend to be jealous over people whose lives overlap with our own a little bit, right? We're not jealous usually of people that are far removed or successful in a different way than us. Right? Like I'm much less likely to be jealous of an NBA basketball player than I am to be jealous of the guy at pickup basketball who's just a little bit better than me, right? It, it's when it's closer to us and it's in something that we value that we, we tend to see jealousy flare up. Think of the example of Saul and David in the Old Testament. Saul was king. David was brought into the mix. This is the David that the Lord used to defeat Goliath. And he was brought into the mix. And initially Saul loved David. 
And David would come and he would play music for Saul when Saul was feeling particularly tormented. And that was great because that didn't really overlap with anything for Saul. He appreciated that. But in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, David started having more military success and the people praised him for it. And so I'll read you a passage here. This is in 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 to 9. So it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistines that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul did not like that. He did not like that line in their song. It says, then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. That overlapped then with something that was a strength to Saul. There was a responsibility of his. And rather than being grateful for David's role in, in helping the military, he became jealous. So what might it be for you? might be different than other people. Uh, a mom might be jealous of another mom whose kids seem kind of more on top of things and better behaved, and so she's jealous there. Or a, a, another mom who seems more put together at the pickup line for when she gets her kids from school, and that might stir up jealousy. A sibling, a brother or sister, might be jealous of a sibling that maybe is a little more athletically successful or academically successful, or popular. A musician might be jealous of another musician who's more skilled or seems to have more opportunities. Somebody at work might be jealous of a coworker who is excelling a little bit more. What are the things that overlap with your life? And just to be aware of the temptation towards jealousy in those things. What would be the opposite? If love is not jealous, what does love do? in response to the successes of others. Romans talks about this. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The loving response to the success of others is to, is to rejoice with them, to thank God for them, to appreciate the way that the Lord is blessing them, to consider even what you might learn from them, rather than to allow jealousy to be stirred up. Love is not jealous, it says, does not brag and is not arrogant, meaning to, to boast in itself and its own accomplishments and its own successes, perhaps as a counterbalance to jealousy. Somebody tries to build themselves up in the eyes of others. It can be hard to identify in yourself, can't it? Super easy to identify in others, isn't it? <laughs> but it can be hard to see in ourselves. Uh, we often are blind to uh, maybe bragging in our own lives. Uh, a diagnostic question to ask yourself is, as I'm talking to people, who is most often the hero of my stories? Like, is it me? Like, am I usually telling stories that, that make me look good? Even if they're true stories and accurate stories, and I feel like it has something to do with this other person, but, but really am I just consistently the hero of my own stories? That might be an indication that... There's a pattern of, of bragging there. Before we move on to the next one, I want to point out something. There's two main passages 
in the New Testament that deal extensively with spiritual gifts, that have long lists of spiritual gifts. We saw these a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and we're in the middle of that right now, and, and Romans 12. And what's interesting is that both of them, in the context of talking about spiritual gifts, say a lot to us as individual believers about what loving attitudes should look like to accomplish them or to accompany them. So we just read this in Romans 12, but elsewhere in Romans 12, I'm going to skip over a couple of verses here. Elsewhere in Romans 12, right before listing off some spiritual gifts, it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment, God has, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, not with a false humility, a sound judgment, but not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And then he goes in and describes various spiritual gifts that we are to use for the body. Same thing, 1 Corinthians 12 describes various spiritual gifts. And then it says, by the way, this is the loving way to use these gifts. Don't be jealous. Don't brag about yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, in other words. Romans 12 goes on to say, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, which is exactly what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Spiritual gifts. But love one another well as you use them. Romans 12, after listing spiritual gifts, it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Even practice hospitality. It's a reminder to us, anytime we're talking about gifts or strengths or considering what they might be for us, to think, am I, am I using these in a loving way? If not, we're going to undercut the very gifts that God has given us. Okay, back to our list. Love is not jealous. Love is not arrogant and boastful. And then we see love is not rude or self-seeking. Your translation might say, uh, as mine does here, the New American Standard, does not act unbecomingly. It might say is not rude, is not unseemly. Those English expressions all have the same idea of behavior that is, that is rude and, and off-putting to somebody else. Uh, here, here's what's tricky about that. What might be rude in one situation might not be in another. And a loving person tries to be aware of that. So, example, a few years ago, I uh, stopped by the, the house of a Japanese couple that my wife and I had gotten to know, and they invited me to stop by for something, and I came to the door, and he invited me in and wanted to give me a tour of his apartment. It was immaculate, spotless, and I walked around, and we got back to the door, and he looked down and said, oh, oh you, you forgot to take off your shoes. And, and, and I hadn't even thought of it. But in, in, their, in their culture, that's it's kind of rude to like walk in with your shoes on and, and walk around the home. Now, it, it was an honest mistake. I, I had just forgotten. I'd heard that before, but I'd forgotten it. Um, may not have been offensive in your home. But if I knew that it was for him and I chose to do it anyways, that would be rude, wouldn't it? Even though it's a cultural thing, it would be just kind of flaunting what would be a, a, a value there. So a loving person says, I'm going to be aware of what is off-putting or rude to the people I'm talking to. It's related here with self-seeking, I think, well, because a rude person is not concerned with others. But somebody who's loving, they want to consider how others take the things that we do and say, and we don't want to seek our own. That's the next phrase there. It does not act rudely. It does not seek its own. And I'm going to lump these two together so I think the heart of, of loving behavior that's not rude is, is behavior that's putting others before ourselves and considering their perspective. We often throw around the term uh, 
narcissism today. We say somebody's a narcissist, or we talk about maybe what narcissism is, and it, it maybe is a helpful term. It's a little bit of a loaded term, so it's maybe confusing sometimes what people mean by saying so-and-so is a narcissist. But at the heart of it seems to be what is being addressed right here. A narcissist, as it's popularly used today, is somebody who is intensely self-focused. Every relationship revolves around themselves. What do they get out of it? What do they not get out of it? It's a self-focused life taken to the extreme. And this passage speaks against that. and says that it's not loving. Love does not seek its own. It does not place itself at the center of the universe. It places the Lord at the center and then prioritizes others rather than seeking its own interest. Going on, we see that love is not provoked, is not resentful. Both are dealing with anger. To be provoked is to be easily irritated. It's to have a quick fuse with an explosive temper so that people around you feel like they have to walk on eggshells because they never know what will, what will ignite your temper. That would be what's described here. It says love, love does not do that because love, as we saw earlier, is, is patient towards the weaknesses of others. I look back with remorse on times that have allowed a quick word to be spoken in anger. And I bet you but you can think of times like that as well for your own life where you've let something come out where you were provoked and it, it damaged somebody or some relationship. This is a, it's a warning that, that love tries to not be easily provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered is the next part of that. That's this idea of being resentful because we're stirring up, holding on to a list of offenses and we're looking to bring those back up, all the ways that somebody has wronged us. Now, it's important to note that, that there's a, a wrong way to apply this, I think. Somebody can say, hey, you, you, we've already talked about this issue in the past. We don't need to talk about it again. But if it's a consistent pattern in somebody's life, and we're coming to them out of love and saying, hey, brother, I don't know if you realize this, but I've seen this happen a few times now. And there's a pattern here. This passage isn't saying that we can't do that. Rather, it's talking about a tendency to hold on to offenses in bitterness and bring them out over and over again. One guy talked, talked about this as being in an argument time machine. Maybe think about this. Maybe you've been in an argument time machine before where you're in a, an argument about one thing and all of a sudden you're transported back in time to a totally different thing. Right, so a common example might be, uh, say, a, a married couple where one of them, we're not going to name genders here, but one of them leaves the dirty clothes on the ground rather than putting them in the, the laundry, right? And, and it becomes a pattern, and let's say the wife gets upset about that and, and says, <laughs> and by the way, this isn't my home. This isn't, <laughs> this is, but I hope you see, like, this is a common type of thing, right? So, so he gets upset and, and is talking about this. And then all of a sudden she says, and it's like, it frustrates me like the time four years ago that we, we, you lost that one check. And instead of depositing at the bank, you didn't. And, and, and the guy's like, I thought we were talking about laundry, right? Why are we four years ago? And that would be the type of thing that's addressed here, where it's 
bringing back unrelated offenses that are just held onto and held onto with resent and keeping this record of wrong and using them like a club. It's not talking about the legitimate concern when you see a pattern in somebody's life and the appropriateness of talking about those things. Love is not provoked, is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in sin, verse 6. And notice, put your eyes on verse 6. The contrast is not quite what we would expect. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Maybe how would we have expected that to go? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in righteousness. Or love does not rejoice in falsehood, but rejoices in truth. And yet what's contrasted it is unrighteousness and truth. And I think it's in a biblical worldview that the things are related. That, that as we compromise on truth and distort truth, we often do it in a way that, that supports and builds up something that would be sinful. This is the idea in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, saying there's an inverting of what's good and what's evil. And says we're not to do that. And love doesn't do that. Love doesn't want to rejoice in things that God's word would call evil. Does not take delight in that. But rather rejoices in what is, what is true. Wayne Mack in his excellent book on 1 Corinthians 13. It's called Maximum Impact. He has a great section on this. Gives some examples of what it would mean to rejoice in unrighteousness. It says, love doesn't enjoy doing evil to others, putting others down, mocking and belittling them. Love doesn't rejoice in encouraging others to do what is wrong. Love doesn't enjoy watching others do evil. It doesn't find delight in reading about a new scandal that someone is involved in. Love doesn't find joy in exposing the sins and faults of others. Sometimes it's necessary to confront somebody, but it's saying it doesn't delight in that. Love is saddened by the violence and cruelty and brutality and crime that are prevalent in the world. It says love doesn't do this. We should ultimately rejoice in what is true and best for people. Often, though, there is pressure, cultural pressure, to, to flip around what's good and what's evil and to rejoice in what's evil. I, I love this quote from Johnny Erickson Tata on this. She says, gradually, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, then acceptable, then praised. You can see that over generations where something that was once un unthinkable, you know, and perhaps it has to do with sexual ethics, perhaps there's other things we could consider unthinkable and then tolerable and then acceptable and then an expectation that you will not just accept but praise certain behavior. This says love doesn't do that. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in truth. And finally, love endures through hardship, we see in verse 7. Love endures through hardship. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Some parallel terms where the first one and the fourth one in that list of bearing and enduring are parallel. Believing and hoping are parallel. It's a, it's a function of poetry that we see embedded here. But it's this idea of, of love that perseveres. It's easy to see this with all of these verses, but we can perhaps see it especially here. Don't, don't you want to be loved like this? Don't you want people that, 
persevere in their love with, for you, that they don't give up on you, that, that when you, you do something wrong, that they don't just hit eject, that, that when they're not sure about your motives, that they believe the best in you rather than assume the worst. Like We, we want to be loved like that. This passage says that, that we are to love like that. Again, though, there might be misapplication where we feel like we can't practice discernment and just have to be gullible and believe what everyone tells us. That's, that's not the case. Proverbs provides some, some helpful guardrails on, on this. It's not a verse I have up there. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. The naive believes everything. This 1 Corinthians 13 isn't saying we're to be naive and just believe whatever anybody tells us about themselves or what they're doing. No, but it's that we're to have a disposition of believing the best in people, that if we're assuming motives, that we assume the best rather than assuming the worst. Love endures, it tells us here, even when it would be easier to give up. It, if we're committed to love somebody only so far as it's easy and enjoyable to us, who are we really loving? We're really loving ourselves. If we're only loving somebody when it's easy and enjoyable for us, we're really only committed to our own good. But when we're loving in a persevering way, in a way, even in the midst of hardship, um, that's a love that is this type of love. We have several families in our bodies, in our church body here over the last few years that have had significant health challenges and have been so encouraged to watch ways in which several different spouses have just loved an enduring, self-sacrificing way to, to help with things, to rearrange things in their life, rearrange things in their homes. That, that is an enduring love. Well, who are we to love like this? We'll wrap up with this. Who are we to love with this type of love? I'll give you three categories. The Bible tells us that we are to love one another. Maybe you think of this as a, some concentric circles where this would be the circle closest to you. This would be your own home, your family, the church body, like literally the people around you. We're to love one another like this. Jesus says really clearly, John 13, 35, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That our discipleship, our following of Christ is shown concretely through our love for one another. So our church, we would desire a church that models this kind of love for each other. We would desire homes that have this type of love. That when the Bible says for a husband to love your wife, this is what it means to be patient towards her, to be kind towards her, to, to be long-suffering, to not seek your own, but to put her desires before your own. That on and on and on. This, this should be boots on the ground in our own homes. But it's not just one another. We're told to love our neighbors. That circle maybe expands out there. If it's concentric circles, it expands out not just the people close to you, you have natural affection for, not just other believers in the church body, but we're told that we're to love the Lord our God, and then it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And and in one account of this, the next question that comes up is, well, who's my neighbor? 
Perhaps because somebody's trying to wiggle out from underneath this, right? Like specifically, Jesus, who, who is this? And he tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, where it's the one who sees a need and meets the need that is showing love for, for somebody. So it's that circle expands out to, to anybody who's you're interacting with, that you have an opportunity to meet some need. It could be literally neighbors. It could be coworkers. It could be parents on the soccer field. It could be, you know, endless number of things. But you might ask, but what if I don't like them? Well, Jesus speaks to that also, doesn't he? Because we're told clearly we're to love our, or love our enemies even. Luke chapter 6. In verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It goes on a few verses later, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. In other words, yeah, I mean, if you just love the people that are easy to love, well, anybody can do that. That's nothing supernatural that God has done in your life for you to love like that. But if you can love those that are difficult, those that have made themselves your enemy, those that are hard, that is a love that demonstrates that the Lord has done something in your life. In other words, there's no room to wiggle out from this, right? There's nobody we can think of that's not going to fall into one of these categories. That love might look different in different relationships and scenarios, but it's a persistent call. So two things on this as we wrap up. First, this is one of the beautiful truths of Christianity. And here's why I think this is important to emphasize. So many of the arguments today against Christianity are not that it's untrue. Many in kind of a, a younger generation aren't so much, unfortunately, concerned with you know, what's true and what's not. But what's good? Is it helpful for people? And an accusation is that Christianity is not, that it's harmful. And, and yet, if we see a passage like this, and, and more than just seeing it, if we as believers, if we live this out, towards our enemies as well as our friends, a love that is patient and kind and not self-seeking and a love that endures. What a, what a powerful argument for the, the truthfulness and the goodness of Christianity. And last, this is the way Jesus has loved you. This is not just a list of things to, to put in order in your life because you're going to do so very imperfectly, and so am I. Although, of course, we're to pursue this kind of love. We are to, to be convicted and seek to change. But, but it's important to note that Jesus has loved you like this. Jesus is patient and kind. He's not self-seeking. He did not hold a grudge. In fact, the word says that when he was on the cross, he even said about those who were literally crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He endured rather than giving up when it could have been easier to get off the cross. It's his love that, that never ends. And it's that kind of love that motivates our love. So that we love because he first loved us. And even though our love is imperfect and flawed and will be till the day we die, he loved perfectly in a way that substituted for our love, our, our sin, our failings, our shortcomings, so that when we trust in him, his perfect life and his death in our place, we're forgiven, given new life, and we have a model to be able to love like, other, like, like that to others. Let's pray.